ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. You're listening to Breakdown, an exclusive podcast of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. For more information, including photos, court records, and video, go to ajc.com slash news slash breakdown. Also, please join our Breakdown Facebook group to meet our reporters and ask questions about our story. Previously on Breakdown. I just remember Mon saying something like, he, he not sure what his, his purpose of his life was, but I was just thinking in my head, like, dang, like, I mean, your purpose basically, you know what I'm saying, was like to start this movement, like try to change the world. Cause it's like now, you know, you your life does have a purpose. Your name has been, you know, continue, continuously th- talked about every single day now. People ask me that all the time, what justice looks like. Um, and I often think, well, what does happy look like? You know, um, I, mean, I lost a mod. And it's, it's in, and I lost him very in a senseless manner. And if these guys go to jail for the rest of their lives, they still won't bring a mod back, you know. But it just would, would be having them to go to jail for him. Down. Let me know. Warning down. Stay on the ground. Just stay on the ground, okay? Keep your hands out. No, keep I've your checked, hands I've already checked for weapons. Be... I've checked him for weapons. Welcome back to Breakdown. I'm Bill Rankin, legal affairs reporter with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm here with my colleague, Asia Burns, covering the February 23rd fatal shooting of Ahmad Arbery just outside of Brunswick, Georgia. One year after Ahmad's killing, actually on the day we dropped our last episode, Wanda Cooper filed a federal lawsuit. Ahmad's mother seeks more than $12 million in damages. The defendants are Travis and Greg McMichael, Roddy Bryan, and members of the Glen County Police Department. Also named in the lawsuit are former Brunswick District Attorney Jackie Johnson and George Barnhill, the DA in the neighboring judicial circuit. The lawsuit alleges that racism played a role in Ahmad's killing and contends there was a conspiracy among the police and prosecutors to cover it all up. The lawsuit brings 14 counts against the defendants, among them, excessive force, unlawful seizure, conspiracy, failure to supervise and train, wrongful death, libel, and willful and wanton misconduct. We'll be following it as it makes its way through federal court in Brunswick. Okay, like we said in our last episode, 
some explosive pretrial court motions are about to be played out. Judge Timothy Walmsley, who's presiding over the case, has scheduled hearings for them on May 12th and May 13th. So there's really two, two types of 404B evidence uh, that we believe is relevant. And, and some of it has to do with um, Mr. Arbery's intentions in the Larry English house that was under construction. Um, and some of it has to do with what were his intentions with regard to his confrontation with Travis McMichael. And then overlaying all of that is the evidence regarding his, his mental illness, uh, which, which is not really 404B, but is um, other evidence that we think bears weight on what happened that day. That's Bob Rubin, one of Travis McMichael's lawyers. He and his law partner, Jason Sheffield, sat down with us to explain why they believe certain evidence about Ahmad's past should be admitted at trial. If you remember, we talked about what's called 404B evidence in Episode 5. It is typically used by prosecutors to show a defendant had a certain modus operandi. Like if he was charged with robbing a store wearing a Harry Potter mask and carrying a sawed-off shotgun, they can introduce past offenses when the defendant was wearing the same mask and using the same weapon. As we told you before, prosecutors are asking Judge Wamsley to let them introduce past racist social media posts and text messages by the McMichaels and Brian. Now, lawyers for the McMichaels have filed their own motions. They want the jury to hear about some of the bad acts Ahmad previously committed, as well as his occasional erratic behavior that was brought on by his mental illness. I know this may upset some people who follow this case. As civil rights activists often say, first, they kill the man, then they assassinate his character. The higher the stakes, and they don't get much higher than in this case, the more likely it is that the defense will try to cast doubt on the person who was killed. Of course, Ahmad isn't the person on trial, but in a sense, that's what the defense is trying to do here. And conveniently for the defense, Ahmad's not here to defend himself. Believe me, we're very sensitive to this. Newsrooms across the country, including my own, have received blowback for reporting about a slain person's troubled past. In this case, however, three men stand charged with murder, and their lawyers say Ahmad's past is relevant to their defense. A judge will decide whether it is or isn't. As you would expect, the state strongly disagrees, and we'll get into that later. Our job is to report the facts, and the McMichael's lawyers disclosed all this in publicly filed court motions. This also is all going to be aired out at the upcoming hearings in May. So, let's get to it. In a previously filed motion, the McMichael's lawyers identified 10 prior instances of Ahmad's past they want to put into evidence. They contend this establishes his motive and his intent on the day he was killed. They also contend Ahmad had used going out for a run or a jog as a cover when he was committing crimes like theft and burglary. Their motions indicate that Ahmad, when questioned or confronted by law enforcement, either tried to flee the scene or became aggressive and threatening. Let's go over some of the 10 incidents. We've mentioned this one before. On December 3rd, 2013, someone saw the butt of a handgun protruding from Ahmad's waistband as he tried to enter the gym to watch a high school basketball game. Ahmad fled, scratching one police officer's arm while trying to get away. He was tracked down by police and ultimately pled guilty to illegal gun possession and obstruction. He would have been 18 at the time. The next one is the incident we covered in the last episode, Ahmad's confrontation with officers Kanego and Haney 
at Brunswick's Townsend Park on October 7, 2017. That's when Ahmad, who'd just been sitting in his car rapping to music one morning, became impatient and upset after Canego took his driver's license. He repeatedly dropped F-bombs and approached Canego in such an aggressive way Canego searched Ahmad for weapons. Later, of course, Haney tried to tase Ahmad when he had his empty hands completely outstretched. That could have been an excessive use of force if Haney's taser had actually worked. In June 2018, Ahmad's mom had called 911 because Ahmad had taken her car keys, the McMichaels motion said. During the call, Wanda Cooper told the operator that her son had a mental condition that had escalated over time. She also said he may become aggressive with the officers if they confronted him or tried to arrest him. On October 21, 2018, a Burke County woman says she saw Ahmad in her backyard looking into car windows. She called police who found Ahmad at his grandmother's house. When they told him about the woman's eyewitness account, Ahmad said he had been running and then threatened to whip the officer's ass if the cop didn't leave him alone, the motion said. On October 28, 2018, a Burke County police officer said he saw Ahmad and two juveniles in a vacant mobile home. Ahmad fled the scene, and when he was later caught, he told police he had been out running, the motion said. There's also Ahmad's December 1, 2018 arrest outside the Walmart for trying to steal that big flat-screen TV. As we said, he later pled guilty to that. There are other alleged incidents where Ahmad ran up to a convenience store, did some stretching, and then went inside, took some items, and ran away. There are also apparently neighbors who witnessed Ahmad removing screens from windows and trying to enter homes, the motion said. When confronted about it, Ahmad took off running. He was not arrested for these other incidents. It seems to me it may be difficult for the defense to get all of these incidents into evidence. I mean, Greg, Travis, and Roddy didn't know about them on the day that Ahmad was shot and killed. Right. We reached out to breakdown commentators Danny Porter, the former Gwinnett County District Attorney, and criminal defense attorney Don Samuel, a resident legal expert. Here's Danny Porter referring to the state's position on the motion. The problem with prior bad acts, as, as the response of the state shows and what the case law shows, is that you're really bringing the character of the victim into, into play in the case, which is generally irrelevant. And here's Don Samuel. I think the defense probably really wants to get this evidence in for exactly the wrong reasons or for exactly the impermissible reasons, frankly. Um, they are very good lawyers. They are very skilled. And I think they know that the more evidence they can get in to show that Mr. Arbery wasn't perfect, the better their chances are of winning or getting a hung jury. I don't think there's any question about that. More on point, the McMichaels lawyers are also seeking to get into evidence the two times Larry English's surveillance cameras caught Ahmad entering his vacant house under construction. One was October 25th, 2019. The other occurred almost a month later on November 18th. There's also the time, 12 days before the fatal shooting, when Travis said he saw Ahmad at the English home and called 911. The McMichaels lawyers are asking Judge Wamsley to let the jury know about that, too. Finally, there's Ahmad's mental health history. We talked about that in the last episode. The defense's motion said Ahmad received a mental health evaluation at Gateway Behavioral Health on December 18, 2018. He was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder. He said he had delusions that sometimes commanded him to rob and steal and hurt people, the defense motion said. The McMichaels lawyers must have received these medical records through discovery, 
where the state shares what information it has with the defense. The defense motion also said Ahmad was given a treatment plan that included prescribed medication, but Ahmad only took the medication for a few days, which means he was not taking it on February 23rd, 2020, the motion said. Like we said, you'll hear more from Danny Porter and Don Samuel later. They think whether this evidence comes in or not is a tougher call. In their motion, Reuben and Sheffield said they don't plan to introduce this evidence to malign Ahmad's character. It's being introduced so the McMichaels can ultimately argue they were acting in self-defense. They say it's necessary because the jury needs to determine who was the aggressor and who was defending himself. We'll hear what Bob Rubin and Jason Sheffield have to say about the mental illness evidence first. The mental illness piece to this case is critical because it's a mental illness that has features to it and traits to it that significantly impact thought as well as behavior. And so when we start with fundamental questions of why was Mr. Arbery in the neighborhood or why was he running after being spotted or why was he behaving oddly when Travis was trying to talk to him or why did he charge that day? One of the answers can be consistent with the state's theory that he was just jogging and he was afraid of white men in trucks who were trying to ask him questions. That's Jason Sheffield. But another explanation to why he may have behaved that way is that he has an underlying mental disorder called schizoaffective disorder. But we also see the behavior side of the disorder as it relates to Mr. Arbery and his history, the impulsivity, the ignoring the consequences of what he's doing, the, the labile mood disorder portion of it where you have this intense and rapidly changing emotional response, the irritability, the manic behavior, which is a, an abnormally long and persistent period of elevated and irritable mood and kind of goal-directed behavior. And these being the fundamental traits of the behavior part of the disorder. Sheffield said the relevancy of the mental illness from a legal point of view could explain why Ahmad and not the McMichaels or Brian was the primary aggressor in those final moments. The reason it's important is because prior to that final moment, there wasn't really any aggression from Travis McMichael or Greg McMichael. They were simply trying to talk to him. They weren't showing force. They weren't showing aggression. They were just asking him why he was there. And at that last moment where he has that switch and he has that break and he decides impulsively to go for the gun, then that is, we think, related to his mental illness. Here's Bob Rubin. So when he is on Burford, which is one of the roads when the um, McMichaels initially contact him, so they pull up alongside him, they're not brandishing weapons, they're not um, exerting any authority at that point. Uh, and they're not showing any dangerous um, proclivities towards him. Um, his response at that point is um, informed, we think, by his mental illness, by schizoaffective disorder. So schizoaffective disorder affects the way we perceive others and others' facial expressions. And so it may explain why Ahmad Arbery chose to simply run away without conversation 
when Travis and Greg caught up to him on Burford. And it you, could have been because he was misperceiving what Greg and Travis's intentions were. They had no intention of hurting him. Of course, Reuben is very likely making these assertions based on Travis's and Greg's account of what happened. Maybe Travis and Greg didn't brandish their weapons when they were trying to chase down Ahmad. Or maybe they did. Travis certainly brandished his shotgun when he got out of the truck. Also, Greg had his handgun trained on Ahmad after that happened. And as to what they said or didn't say and the way they said it, their tone, I'm not saying they're lying. I'm just saying we have only their versions, not Ahmad's. We also asked, what if Ahmad acted the way he did that day simply because he was scared out of his wits? I mean, he's a black man being chased by two white guys in a truck with a Confederate battle flag emblem on the front license plate. Here's Sheffield. Let's assume that what you're saying is true. Then what about the situation was so frightening that he had not experienced before, that he did not interpret as frightening before? You have a young man who we feel has been dealing with his mental illness by running, okay? Running through neighborhoods, running along the highway, running into truck stops, running to gas stations, and interacting with people in the local area, which includes white people in trucks. And we have somebody who, I think the problem is everybody is going on a global assumption that any black man running on the road who is approached by any white man in trucks wanting to talk to him instantly would be frightened, instantly would be running away because this is South Georgia. But the people that are thinking that don't necessarily live and run and exist in this area that Ahmad had been living and running and existing in for years upon years upon years. He's not afraid of white police officers. He bucks up pretty well when a white police officer confronts him. He doesn't show any fear. In fact, he shows a lot of aggression. So it doesn't make sense that on this Sunday afternoon, middle of the day, um, in a neighborhood where people are out watering their grass and working in the yard and doing whatever, that he would be so afraid of being hurt by two white people in a truck that he would uh, have to run the other way. Now, one thing he could have been afraid of is being caught because he's on probation and being detained for the police means he goes back to the county jail and that's not a pleasant situation. To assume, and everybody does, that he's afraid because these guys are white and he's black really is a, a huge assumption and really just speculation. It could also be an assumption and speculation to say he wasn't afraid that three white men were trying to chase him down. Here's Sheffield again. Is it within the realm of possibility that he was frightened out of his mind when the truck pulled up next to him and asked him to stop or to talk about why he was there? Of course. But it's also important to ask other questions about him and his mindset and what may have been happening to him because of a mental illness. It would not be accurate to just assume it was what everyone you know, wants to believe, which is he was frightened out of his mind. He may have been literally out of his mind at that time as he had been and exhibited for so many moments in his life before that. 
Sheffield said this evidence should be admissible because it helps the jury understand and interpret Ahmad's behavior on the day he died. If they feel that he is behaving that way, or if the judge feels he might be behaving that way, or even more appropriately, could be behaving in that way due to the mental illness, and that his aggression or his behavior is a result of that mental illness, it is acutely relevant to the jury's determination of self-defense. Sheffield said Ahmad didn't act like most people would have when confronted by police. Um, he reacts in a particular way when confronted by authority, and that is to run or to, to buck up and be aggressive. There are three videos where police officers are just simply trying to talk to him, even though he doesn't like it, and even though there is a history in this country of improper police interaction with, with innocent people and innocent conduct. But his response to that is to say to the police officers, I will physically beat you if you don't leave me alone. And that's, we feel, not because he's a bad person, but because he suffers from a mental illness that causes that type of irritability and irascibility and that kind of labile mood disorder. Here's Ruben again. He's referring to body cam video that's not yet become public. It's an incident in Burke County, which is just south of Augusta, Georgia, where Ahmad's grandmother lives. It might very well be attributed to his mental illness, but his quick temper um, and his ability to go from zero to 60 in about two seconds with officers who are not there to do him harm. And you can see that in the Burke County um, body cam as well. They're there just to make sure he stays out of trouble so he doesn't go to jail, so he doesn't end up in a far worse situation or, or worse yet, get killed by someone who sees him snooping around their property. Um, and, and yet he threatens them very quickly uh, with bodily harm, something that uh, watching it was surprising to me because I was amazed at the restraint these officers had in um, trying to de-escalate the situation. Not perfectly, obviously, with, uh, with the incident in the park. Sheffield also said this about Ahmad's mental illness. It, it appears to underscore the other tragedy of this case is that we have a young man who has got a serious mental illness, who was on probation with a caring probation officer, who has a mother who loves him and was doing what she appeared to be, what she could do to help him. And here he's gotten an evaluation. It's being recommended that he takes medication, but he's not taking his medication. And he's really not getting the help he needs to deal with this mental illness, which leads him to his own devices and leaves him to be a victim of his mental illness as well. And that's another tragedy of this case, apart from his death. It's the troubling risk-taking behavior aspect of Ahmad's mental illness that makes it relevant at trial, Sheffield said. That's why the mental illness is at the heart of this case. And it's tragic that he didn't get the help that he needed. And it's also the law that you are allowed to try to arrest people and it's the law that you're allowed to carry firearms. And somewhere in all of that, we now have this death. We have lawful behavior, but lawful behavior that results in a death. And that's tragic. Ruben and Sheffield then turned to the 404B evidence and explained why they think that should come in too. 
the prior bad acts, as they're called in legal jargon. So what the McMichaels knew informs their probable cause, clearly. So their knowledge of what happened in Larry English's house on three prior occasions um, creates the probable cause that crime, a particular crime was being committed and it was being committed by Ahmaud Arbery. Okay. But the other crimes that Ahmaud Arbery is committing, the thefts, the break-ins, the, the, the stealing, all that stuff, um, doesn't inform Travis and Greg McMichael's knowledge, but it gives a jury an understanding of what is Ahmaud Arbery doing in Larry English's house. Next, Reuben talks as if he knows what Ahmad was thinking when he entered the house under construction on the day he was killed. Some people have characterized what he was doing as looking for water, a water source, or looking at the electrical wiring in the house. Um, others have characterized him as just resting after a long jog, or perhaps he was loitering or trespassing, but no one talks about burglary. And burglary is what actually he was doing. Um, burglary is a felony. Burglary is uh, entering a dwelling without authority and a house under construction is a dwelling um, with the intent to commit a felony or a theft. It doesn't mean you have to take anything. doesn't mean you ever take anything. It's the intent to commit a felony or a theft that makes it a burglary. And, and, and it's what characterize, uh, what is the difference between a burglary and a trespass. That's a pretty bold statement. Ahmad was burglarizing the house, he said. I expect that's what Reuben will also tell the jury. But don't forget, none of the security camera video on the day Ahmad was killed or during the two prior occasions showed him taking anything out of that house. And of course, Ahmad had nothing on him, nothing, when he was shot and killed. So just flat out saying he was committing a burglary could be a hard sell which is why the defense must think it needs the jury to hear about his past behavior. Here's Reuben again, referring to the time Ahmad was seen inside Larry English's house at night. In this case, if you're trying to understand what was Ahmad Arbery's intent in entering a house at night um, that was not his and with, with which he had no authority to enter, um, then you can look at his other actions to understand his intent. That's where the other thefts come in. So his um, taking the screens off and, and jiggling with the window uh, of a house near his neighborhood um, is similar to this um, Larry English uh, break-in. Um, his stealing uh, from stores along uh, Highway 17 or I-95 um, is also similar when he enters with the intent to commit a theft. These are things that allow a jury to um, piece together what's going on in Ahmaud Arbery's mind. Again, Sheffield said the defense is not casting aspersions on Ahmad and is not trying to gain some unfair advantage. We are tasked with trying to explain what happened and why it happened. One of the things that we promised very early on in this case is that we were gonna to try to get to the truth about what happened. And what happened is not just a reflection of those things that happened on February 23rd, but they do go back in time and it needs to be explained so that the decision makers in this case, the jurors can have the fullest context possible when making a very important decision, probably the most important decision of their lives. This is not an effort to trash Ahmad Arbery. The, the young man that, that his family knew um, 
sounds like a sweet guy, took care of his, his uh, nephew, maybe niece and nephew, um, his brother's children, and had a smile for people he would see on the road. Uh, Might have been, you know, a, a, certainly was a wonderful athlete um, and a friend to a lot of people. But that's just the side they knew. There's clearly, unless they're being disingenuous, another side to him um, that is known to a lot of people and it's public record. It's not us making this up in effort to win the case. So this doesn't take away from um, the sweet guy that Jasmine knows as her little brother and that Wanda knows as her son. Um, that He still exists. Um, but there's another side that is relevant, we think, to the case that needs to come out as well. Not surprisingly, the prosecution opposes it, strongly so. Ocean breeze, tropical beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. We asked them if they would like to comment for breakdown about the defense motions. They declined. But they did file a response in court that minced few words. We'll read from it instead. Here's how they started out. The character of the victim is hardly ever relevant to the crime of murder, since it is just as illegal to murder a good person as it is a bad person. Murder is illegal whether the citizen served breakfast for the homeless at his church or stole cars or both. The victim's prior crimes or other acts involving third parties do not excuse or mitigate his murder and are generally not relevant to any issue at trial. The state took strong exception to the defense's motives. Here's what they wrote. Ahmad Arbery was chased down by men with guns and two pickup trucks who were attempting to unlawfully detain him, even though they had not seen Mr. Arbery commit any crime on February 23, 2020, and they had no immediate knowledge of any felony offenses he had committed. The only purpose for placing the other acts of Mr. Arbery before a jury is to smear the character of Mr. Arbery and suggest that his murder was deserved. Prosecutors Jesse Evans and Linda Dunikowski, who wrote the response, said evidence of prior bad acts is only admissible if the defendants had known about Ahmad's prior convictions and confrontations. Here's what they wrote. The defendants did not know Mr. Arbery, they had no prior relationship with him, and knew nothing about the ten prior acts they now seek to admit. The ten prior acts have no relevancy on the issue of the reasonableness of their actions, since any such prior acts by Mr. Arbery did not escalate their fear of him or inform the defendant's decision-making process to shoot him. Some more strong language here. What is in dispute is whether the defendants were justified or were unlawfully acting as vigilantes who did not bother to call the police before trying to hit Mr. Arbery with their trucks, trap him like a rat, and point a shotgun at him to force him to stop, thus committing several felonies. And they wrote this. What is in dispute is whether the defendants were acting in self-defense at the time defendant Travis McMichael pulled the trigger on his racked and loaded shotgun, killing Mr. Arbery, or whether they murdered an unarmed jogger who was entitled to defend himself against the defendant's initial use of force against him. They didn't hold anything back, that's for sure. For our purposes, some shorter sentences would have been nice. The prosecution does agree with the defense on at least one thing. 
They say that Ahmad's entering the vacant English house under construction the three prior occasions is relevant to the case. So that comes in. I'm sure the state is agreeable to that because there is no evidence Ahmad stole anything from the house on those prior occasions. He was only seen looking around and didn't try to take anything. Evans and Donikoski also wrote this of the three defendants. They were the first aggressors, getting into their pickup truck, driving after Mr. Arbery, and trying to hit him with their vehicles. Mr. Arbery had no obligation to stop and talk to complete strangers who were armed and chasing him with their vehicles. The state also contends that Travis pointed his shotgun at Ahmad as a provocation to get Ahmad to react so that Travis could kill him. Evans and Donikoski finished their response by calling the prior bad act evidence impermissible and improper. They added, The defendant seeks solely to smear the victim and ask the jury to excuse the defendant's behavior by saying, See, Arbery was a bad guy. It's okay that they murdered him. Interestingly, the state also attached an appendix to their response. You don't see this happen very often. They attached a partial transcript of the statement Greg McMichael gave to police about two hours and 45 minutes after Ahmad was shot and killed. They did so to try and show that Greg, Travis, and Roddy were unaware that Ahmad had been involved in criminal activity in the Satilla Shores neighborhood. I wish we had the audio recording for you, but it wasn't entered into evidence. So once again, Asia and I will take turns reading some snippets from the transcript. If you recall episode 7 when we focused on the police body cam video just after the shooting, I'm sure you'll remember Greg's distinctive way of talking. Here's one thing Greg said. We were aware that there had been numerous entering autos and break-ins and such in the neighborhood going on for quite some time. And of course this guy that was on the video, I mean logic will tell you this guy may be the one doing it. Here's Greg referring to Travis's gun being stolen out of his car on New Year's Day. So now we have a missing weapon and the possibility in my mind that the guy that's been breaking in down the road there may have that weapon. That's just a hunch. I've been a cop for 30 years. An investigator asked Greg when he saw the security videos if he saw Ahmad picking up anything. Here's Greg. Not that I recall. I don't think the guy has actually stolen anything out of there, or if he did, it was early on in the process. But he keeps going back over and over and over to the damn house. Greg catches himself during this point of the interview, again referring to Travis's stolen handgun. The thing that was doubtful, not doubtful, but was it certainly a driving factor in my mind, was that my son had a missing pistol. And I'm pretty certain this guy, well, I don't know for a fact, and I have no reason to think that he did it, other than the fact that this guy has been doing this crap over and over again. I'm sure we're going to hear this part of the interview at trial during the state's case-in-chief. Investigator, did this guy break into a house today? Greg, that's just it. I don't know. Don't forget what Georgia's citizen's arrest law said at the time of Ahmad's killing. Here it is, verbatim. A private person may arrest an offender if the offense is committed in his presence or within his immediate knowledge. If the offense is a felony and the offender is escaping or attempting to escape, a private person may arrest him upon reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion. We asked Reuben and Sheffield about the interview transcript attached to the prosecution's response. Here's what Reuben said. And I don't want to cast aspersions on, on um, my opposing counsel because I like both of them, or all three of them, actually. But 
it is so badly taken out of context as to be borderline intentional. Um, Greg McMichael very clearly tells the police that the reason they decided to get in the truck and try to detain Mr. Arbery is because he knew for a fact that that was the same guy he saw on three prior occasions through videos um, breaking into Larry English's house and committing the burglaries on other occasions. And he, he didn't see him for himself on February 11th, but Travis McMichael did. And Travis also told the police, that was the guy I saw on the 11th. Um, so um, I don't know who wrote this. I don't know what transcript or, or recording they were watching. Um, but Greg McMichael is very clear on the basis for believing the guy running past him, um, not jogging, but hauling ass, as Greg said, um, was the same exact guy based on clothing, and his hair and, and what he had seen on the video as the guy who had broken into the house previously. It's not a, he didn't say it was a gut. totally misconstrues what Greg McMichael says. Well, when the audio of the recording is played at trial, and I'm sure it will be, we'll know for sure. The tragedy aside, the, and the... the but from a purely legal standpoint, uh, I think this case is going to be a master class in, in trial strategy and trial technique. That's Danny Porter again. He said he was impressed by the motions filed and the legal maneuvering by both sides. Here's Don Samuel, an expert on Georgia law, explaining how things used to be and where they stand now. The law in Georgia up until recently, had been that in a self-defense case, the defense is entitled to put in evidence of the victim's prior assaultive behavior, even if the defendant didn't know about it. And the theory of those cases, in particular a case called Chandler from 1991, the theory of those cases was that the defendant is entitled to put up evidence that the victim was the assaulting person, who was the aggressor, and to prove that, um, here's evidence that he did it on prior occasions. He did it once, this is the way he behaves, this is the way he attacks people when he gets angry, you know, whatever the particular facts are, and therefore I'm telling the truth when I say that I was acting in self-defense uh, and repelling the assault of the victim. But that changed six years ago. In, in 2015, the Supreme Court reversed that decision, reversed the Chandler decision, overruled it, and said that you can't put in evidence, generally, of the victim's prior assault of behavior if you didn't know about it. Because if you didn't know about it, it couldn't have been what prompted you to act in self-defense. How could something that you didn't know about have any bearing whatsoever on your state of mind, your belief, or your reasonable belief that you needed to defend yourself if you didn't even know about the person's prior assaultive behaviors. Samuel said the same would hold true regarding Arbery's intentions when he entered the English house the day he died. If the defendants didn't know about allegations against Arbery of prior thefts, that could not have informed their reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion, he said. The defense in this case is claiming that they were, you know, initiating a citizen's arrest based on their belief 
that Mr. Arbery had engaged in a burglary. If they reasonably believe that, then they have the right under then existing law to uh, uh, participate in a citizen's arrest or to, to, to attempt to initiate a citizen's arrest. The only thing that matters is, did they reasonably believe that? That's the only question that, that is, is a, going to be addressed at the trial. If they reasonably believe that, then they were entitled to make a citizen's arrest, even if they were wrong. Even if they were wrong. I found this interesting. Samuel says whether Ahmad committed a burglary or not is beside the point. The jury's not going to be asked to decide, did he commit a burglary? The jury's going to be asked to decide, did the McMichaels believe he did? What was in their mind? What was their state of mind? If they reasonably believed it, whether they're right or wrong, then they can initiate a citizen's arrest. And here's Porter. My initial reaction to that is, is that they're not going to be able to get that in as, as part of their defense of, of either, so their, their defense rests on that they were law, that the defendants were lawfully making a citizen's arrest and therefore were justified in lawfully using force when that citizen's arrest was resisted. And the prior bad acts in order for them to be admissible um, would have to be within the knowledge of the defendants. And, and there's no indication that any of these are, even the entries into the house, the multiple entries into the empty house on Satilla Drive. Even if Walmsley rules out this evidence before trial, there is a way it still gets before the jury. Unless it's somehow what we call opening the door, unless the, unless either the state brings their character into issue or there's something that happens in the course of the evidence that the defense can argue, well, now the defendant's character is relevant to the guilt-innocence decision. I'll give you an example. If a witness gets on the stand and says, Mr. Arbery was, was the nicest man in the world and he would never hurt a fly and, and he was just as nice as could be and sweet to everybody in the community. Well, that kind of opens the door uh, and, and that witness can then be cross-examined. You know, isn't it true that Mr. You know, Arbery you know, committed this crime and this crime and this crime and, and engaged in all this prior assaultive behavior? I think that unless, unless, unless the the state makes a horrible mistake, which I don't anticipate that they will, and brings Ahmad Aubrey's character into issue, that I don't see how most of that 404B information can get in. As a criminal defense lawyer, Samuel says he understands why this is an important issue to the McMichaels. He also said this. The more you can, as sometimes people say, dirty up the victim, the more you can try the victim. Uh, the more you can try to portray the victim as being a bad person, um, the better your chances are of winning. That's not a legitimate reason to put in evidence. You, you, you can't murder a good person. You can't murder a bad person. You are allowed to use self-defense, and self-defense can be used against a good person, and self-defense can be used against a bad person. But just to say that Mr. Arbery had done bad things in the past doesn't, it's just absolutely inadmissible evidence unless you can explain why that's relevant to something. We asked Porter, who's prosecuted many, many murder cases, how often do defense lawyers try this? As often as they can. That's a, that's a fairly standard 
that's a fairly standard attempt by the defense and, and the prosecution is going to have to be alert for it. Cause I think you're going to see it in cross exam. You're going to see inferences to it in cross-examination. I think, I think they're going to, I think they're going to try and, and basically say, you know, he was a bad guy. Therefore they had a right to pursue. Therefore, um, therefore they had a right to use deadly force. I think it's kind of a shot in the dark by the defense, but if the, if they succeed, it's going to, it's going to complicate the prosecution's job. Of course, Rubin and Sheffield insist this isn't the reason they're trying to get this evidence in. But Samuel said if they can't convince the jury Travis, Greg, and Roddy were acting within the bounds of the law when they began chasing him on, it's game over. If you believe that you were initiating a lawful citizen's arrest, then you can go ahead and do a lawful citizen's arrest. If you didn't reasonably believe it, even if you believed it but it wasn't reasonable, or if, in fact, you didn't entertain that belief at all, um, then they're chasing him down. They're clearly the initial aggressor in that situation, illegitimately the initial aggressor. And if they're initial aggressor, they can't claim self-defense at all, at all. Well, they were falsely imprisoning him. They're aggravated assault, pointing a weapon at him, using the gut, using the car as a weapon is aggravated assault. They got all kinds of problems. If they are not reasonably engaged in a, in a citizen's arrest, they have no defense, as far as I can tell, none. Yeah. I mean, you, you can't use a, a car as a weapon. You can't use guns as a weapon. You can't chase someone down. You can't um, uh, try to imprison them or detain them. None of that's legal, unless you reasonably believe you're making a citizen's arrest under the law of the state of Georgia. What about the evidence of Ahmad's mental illness? That's not an easy question, both Samuel and Porter say. Its relevancy hinges on whether Travis, Greg, and Buddy can lay a solid foundation that they were making a valid citizen's arrest. So you, they have to begin by proving to the jury, or the, in theory the prosecution has to disprove, that they had a reasonable belief that they were making a citizen's arrest. Once they overcome that hurdle, then it gets more complicated. Then, then you have to decide, was Mr. Arbery the aggressor out in front of the pickup truck um, when, when they came to the confrontation? And that's where, if, if he, in fact, was the aggressor at that point and was trying to avoid a citizen's arrest, which was lawful, would have been lawful, if he is the aggressor, then they have the right to use self-defense. Travis has the right to use self-defense to, to repel the assault that Mr. Arbery is initiating. And it's in that context, that small slice of time, that I think evidence of his prior assaultive conduct is relevant to show that he was the aggressor at that time. That was his intent, to assault Travis. Here's Porter again. Their story is going to be this, is... We saw him running through the neighborhood. It looked suspicious. We jumped in our trucks. We drove up beside him. We said, hey, man, we want to talk to you. And he bolted. And then we pursued because that raised our suspicions. And then when, I, when we finally got him penned up and confronted him, he attacked, he attacked me and I had to use the shotgun. That's going to be their narrative. If the mental illness tends to support that uh, that he did all that because of his mental illness that he's more prone to do that it may it, I, i'm just not sure it may become relevant 
Finally, we asked Porter about the defense's contention that Greg, Travis, and Roddy were not the aggressors that day. That doesn't make sense to me. You jump out of a pickup truck with a shotgun, and that's not aggression? I mean, you don't have to, you don't have to call him anything. You don't have to speak the words. I mean, you point a gun at somebody, you're an aggressor. That's going to be a hard sell. That's going to be a real hard sell. The court hearings, Wamsley scheduled for May 12th and 13th, could really be something. Absolutely. And we'll be back to you when they're over. Finally, before we sign off, we need to let you know that on the final day of its legislative session, the General Assembly passed an overhaul of Georgia's citizens' arrest law. With a 51-to-1 vote in the Senate and a 169-to-0 vote in the House, Georgia became the first state in the country to repeal and reform its citizens' arrest statute. Governor Brian Kemp applauded the votes and said he'll soon sign the bill into law. Under the new version, private citizens can no longer try to detain someone the way Greg, Travis, and Roddy tried to detain Ahmad, but Greg, Travis, and Roddy can still state their case at trial relying on the old law. Next, on Breakdown. Judge Walmsley will preside over the pretrial motions hearing. Hopefully, this time he'll speak into his microphone. As always, thanks so much for listening. Please, please stay safe during this pandemic. I hope you've received your vaccines by now or are lined up for one. I just had my second and Asia had her first. Let's get that herd immunity. Until next time, I'm Bill Rankin. been listening to Breakdown, hosted by Bill Rankin, produced by Asia Simone Burns and Bill Rankin, edited by Jennifer Brett, music by Bo Emerson and Billy Gewen, sound design by Asia Simone Burns. Special thanks to Kevin Riley, Sean McIntosh, Leroy Chapman, and Pete Corson. Please rate and review us on iTunes or your favorite download app. We also invite you to listen to the previous seven seasons of Breakdown. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC.